Welcome to Five Things About. I'm Chris Hatzis. Five Things About is for you and your inner curious cat. The part of you that just loves to know what others know about inventions and ideas. In each episode, we'll meet experts who'll share five insights from their field of work. You've heard the proverb, curiosity killed the cat. The rest of the proverb is, but satisfaction brought it back. So go on, knock yourself out and bring yourself back. Today, we explore five things about poo. Yep, you heard right, poo, human waste, feces. It's something we don't talk about openly. It can cause shame and embarrassment, but our toilet habits reveal a lot about our emotions, attitudes, culture, and gender. It's also a serious issue. Fecal-borne diseases are a major cause of death in many places around the world. Our host today is Claire Darling, podcasting intern at the University of Melbourne. We're talking to Professor Nick Haslam from the University of Melbourne's Department of Psychological Sciences. Universally, excrement is the main taboo term across pretty much all languages. Nick is the author of Psychology in the Bathroom. It's a great read about the sociology of poo. We'll also hear from Naomi Francis, a PhD candidate at the Nossel Institute. We have toilet graveyards around the world. Naomi's investigating the link between poor water sanitation and hygiene in Timor-Leste. As part of her research, she asks people where they defecated that morning. So, luckily for us, she's well-practised in having awkward conversations. Hi, Nick. Preparing for this episode sparked a very candid conversation about poo amongst my colleagues. In particular, we talked about that time around 11am when our caffeinated mornings find us all migrating to the office toilets. Each of us had different feelings about how we approach pooing in a shared toilet. It's an embarrassing event for many of us. Nick, why are some people so fearful about going to the toilet in public? Well, I think it's a very private act. And it's something which strong emotions are attached to. For instance, people often feel disgusted about the process. You're taught from an early age that your poo is something to be gotten rid of and forgotten about and flushed away. There's a lot of shame to do with it. You're exposing your body in a way you wouldn't do in public. I think also, especially for women, there is more concern about being pure, clean, proper. And in the words of one study participant on a study on this topic, women are meant to be non-poopers. Uh, It's something which somehow goes against femininity, if you like. Not to say that there's lots of anxieties about going to the bathroom for both men and women. Uh, There's enormous anxiety to do with it. Partly, as I said, exposure. Partly the fact that there's a lot of disgust and shame attached to this very human practice everywhere. So how is this taboo around human poo? How has that developed over time? Is it as big an issue now as it was, say, 100, 200 years ago? I think it's always been an issue, and it's an issue for a very good reason. I mean, a huge number of children die each year because of faecally transmitted infections. There are very good reasons to get rid of your excrement. It is a sort of primal, contaminating substance. And I think a lot of us kind of get that. I mean, there's wonderful survey done at the British public uh, a while ago, which were they were asked to say which are the most uh, important inventions of all time. And number nine was the flush toilet right above the combustion engine. People get it. People get how it is important to, to be rid of, uh, of this stuff. Now, that's not to say it's an instinct. So people often imagine that there must be some sort of instinctive aversion to excrement. 
But you only have to look at very small children to realise there's no instinct. They'll smear things, they'll do all sorts of horrible things. And my favourite study of this was done with two-year-olds by the American psychologist Paul Rosen. What he did was he constructed a fake poo out of peanut butter and smelly blue cheese, put it on crackers and offered it to two-year-olds, and almost all of them took it and ate it, even when told what it was, which of course it wasn't. So there's no instinctive aversion. You have to learn it. But once you've learned it, I think even as an adult, there's this taboo attached to it, not necessarily one which inspires horror, but that anxiety. And the fact that we make humour of this is partly a way of acknowledging that there's some sort of taboo charge attached to it. Diarrhoea caused by dirty water and bad sanitation is the second biggest killer of children worldwide. PhD candidate Naomi Francis has been working with WaterAid to improve access to safe water, sanitation and hygiene in Timor-Leste. The biggest problem we're worried about with poo and containing it is diarrhoea. Lots of diarrhoea is caused by stuff found in poo. Our poo has lots of pathogens in it and they come in several formats. One is viruses and they're a small infectious agent that replicates inside the living cells of other organisms. So that's one. Bacteria are another, they're just single-celled microorganisms. Protozoa are another one, another kind of single-celled microorganism. And then there's helminths, which are parasitic worms. Those are the four main players involved in causing disease in our poo. WaterAid states that 3 in 10 people in Timor-Leste lack safe water and twice as many have nowhere to go to the toilet but out in the open. Can you tell us more about the situation there? So the biggest issue is what we call open defecation, which is a fancy word for shitting in the bush, basically. And that could be in rivers, usually in a private spot, in the forest. Sometimes it's in the ocean. And it doesn't just refer to going and finding a random spot. Open defecation includes unsafe forms of of sanitation. So someone may have built a specific structure or place for going to the toilet but if it's not safely containing faeces then it's considered open defecation. In these remote communities people are usually accessing water from what we would call unsafe sources so open sources like springs or rivers or creeks and those are fine as long as they're protected and you can be sure that they're not being contaminated by what's going on upstream and that might be open defecation or animals or industry. So yeah, a lot of these communities aren't accessing safe water. In terms of their sanitation practices, most of the community will be defecating in the open. And in terms of hygiene, because of a lack of convenient water sources, so they're having to carry their water, they're not washing their hands as frequently as they should. There's less than safe levels of menstrual hygiene management. The main things that are going on is that people don't have access to safe water or a safe way to deal with their faeces. So how do community-led programs address these issues? This technique that WaterAid are using is it's really tapping into or it's trying to, I guess, use people's feelings of disgust and shame around faeces to trigger them into changing their behaviour. The way it's done in the villages that I saw in Timor-Leste were there's a community meeting that's held and the community are asked to draw or make a community map out of coloured sand on the ground and on that map various people are asked to mark out where they defecated that day. It's meant to be a little bit embarrassing, it's meant to be funny and usually it is. In all the contexts that I saw people were a bit uncomfortable but there was lots of laughing and fooling around with it as well. And then the second part of the activity is to actually go for a walk out into the community to find places where people have defecated and the facilitator will take a stick with them. They'll find a piece of poo, put the stick in it, bring it back to the group 
they'll get one of their hairs and put it on the feces on the stick and then put that in a glass of water. And this is all to symbolise that a hair is, is as big as the legs of a fly and it's just to show the faecal oral pathway via that fly route. And then they'll offer the glass of water around to people in the group and obviously no one will drink it. But they're really trying to bring home to people what the faecal oral pathway is and what's going on when they shit in the bush and don't cover it up. Nick, how is the language and the way we talk about poo related to the psychological responses that we have? Universally, excrement is the main taboo term across pretty much all languages. It's also the most common thing that people with uh, Tourette's syndrome blurt out, faecal words, you know, like shit. And that sort of shows it's the, the, you know, really seen as the most offensive thing to say because uh, people who lose those inhibitions express it those ways. Apparently there's ten different meanings of the word shit in uh, swearing. You know, this makes sense. The taboo words we use to express uh, strong emotions are the ones attached to the most primal taboo subjects, usually sex, excrement and God. So although, you know, these uh, excrement-related words are kind of universally taboo and widespread across almost all languages, they're more in use in some languages than others. And so there's been cross-cultural studies on swearing, on how people um, respond to someone who's violated some social rule. And uh, especially Germans and Americans, it's been shown, tend to use more sort of anally themed swearing. So it's more in some cultures than others, maybe the more Anglo-Saxon ones. But nevertheless, it's fairly universal as a theme, as a taboo theme, because it's a taboo issue for all human beings. Can you tell us more about the role gender plays in going to the bathroom? Sure. It's one of the areas where I think we often forget that there are pretty significant differences. So people talk an awful lot about the sexual double standard, but I think there's also an excretory double standard. I think women are held to much higher standards of odorlessness, soundlessness. Women tend to be more bothered about using public restrooms, at least the studies show that. One terrific study showed that women are really penalised socially if they are seen as going to the bathroom. An experimenter, either male or female, left the room in this study and told the participant in the study that they were going in one condition to the bathroom, in the other condition, just to get some papers. And then the impressions of the participant of the experimenter were observed and uh, the woman who'd said she was going off to the bathroom was judged more negatively than the one who'd just gone to get some papers, but there was no excretion penalty for the male experimenter. There's something incompatible between femininity and excretion, I think, in, in the popular mind. Women are also more, on average, censorious towards things like flatulence. They object more. They find some of these things, on average, more offensive. So gender plays a big role here. Uh, and I think in part that's because men sort of play up their grossness as a sort of reaction against femininity. Because femininity is associated with being proper, with being clean, with being neat, one way to display raucous masculinity is to uh, do the opposite. According to Naomi Francis, females have added challenges in low-income settings like Timor-Leste. The specific gender needs of, of people using toilets are the same all over the world. For women, their specific needs are, are around menstrual hygiene management and around pregnancy. When you're thinking about getting people to use toilets, you need to take the menstrual hygiene management needs of women into account. That usually includes having a larger space for changing clothes or for washing clothes and that means also having a place where you can have water and drainage in the toilet. In a low-income setting that's particularly important because women are often using rags rather than disposable products. But the main thing is the privacy, I guess, and so that means having a toilet that is specifically for women. It needs to have doors that lock from the inside properly. 
programs these days that deal with menstrual hygiene management also look at the psychosocial elements of it, so the stigma around menstruation. Nick, Freud talked about the anal personality type. What's your take on this? Well, my take on this is that he was actually right about describing a kind of person. Freud said there was this, what he called the anal triad of personality traits that tend to go together, uh, and they were orderliness, you know, being perfectionistic, requiring things to be just so and rigid. There was obstinacy, being stubborn and irascible. And there was parsimony, which is basically being tight with money or concerned about not wasting things, not wasting time. And it turns out that those things do in fact go together. Those characteristics are a part of a recognised type of person. The trouble is Freud thought that these things stemmed from toilet training practices, that uh, there was a, a group of people who had these traits who remembered as children taking pleasure in retaining their faeces. And there's absolutely no evidence for that. So Freud was right in describing a kind of personality. It's real. And it's actually still in the diagnostic manual of psychiatry to this day. It's called obsessive compulsive personality disorder. It completely, precisely matches Freud's description of the anal character. But it's got nothing to do with the anus. Naomi, can you tell us about toilet graveyards and how your community-led program may offer a different solution? You can go all over the world in low-income settings and see toilet graveyards everywhere because NGOs and governments that have thought what we need to do is build toilets because they don't have the money to build them, whereas actually it's a much more, I guess, a psychologically based reason for not using them. What we've found since is that people didn't actually end up using the toilets and so we have what is called toilet graveyards around the world where there's these beautifully constructed toilets that aren't being used anymore or they're being used for anything but defecation. So I've seen people cooking in their toilets because you've got this nice sort of concrete basin that you can put a fire in. Some toilets you would often find full of faeces, but it would be cow dung, which is being dried out because that will be the driest place in the village. So people are definitely using them for interesting things, but not what they're intended for. And so my research is looking at what that event changes, basically. So I measured sanitation indicators before that triggering meeting, And what I found was that a lot of people had started building their toilets or had made active plans to build a toilet, so they were starting to get materials, that kind of thing, in that one week after. Six to nine months later, there was a a bit of a spread, so some people still had not started building toilets. Some of them had built toilets, but those toilets had already broken down. Other people had built and maintained and were improving their toilets. They were adding concrete to it or they were adding sort of what they call a tanki, which is a little concrete tank next to the toilet for washing themselves afterwards. So there were all levels of responses at that long-term follow-up. Nick, tell us what measures do some people take to conceal their toilet habits? So we're talking about, you know, anxieties about using bathrooms. And, you know, this is, I think, it's got a long history. Um, and there's a terrific anecdote, sad anecdote from the early 20th century of two sisters who worked uh, in a mill and had to walk past a particular window where they could be observed by male workmates every time they had to go to the loo. And they found that so unpleasant that they ended up not going and ended up um, only being able to go uh, on weekends, both of them, and having to spend most of Sunday uh, evacuating their bowels because they developed this inhibition about being observed by male workmates. And I think this sort of concern about being observed is really widespread. Apparently in Japan you can buy machines that make uh, white noise so that you can disguise your sounds. They're very widely used, especially by Japanese women, I gather. This is something where people don't like being exposed. Even if they're in private, they would rather have this illusion that no one else is around. 
What would be a course of action to improve upon that person's phobia? It's easy to make light of this subject, but it actually can be quite serious and some of these problems can be quite debilitating. Look, I think the thing to do is to get in touch with a psychologist who specialises in anxiety and they'll do a program of treatment which sort of gradually helps you to feel less anxious, more relaxed, less threatened and uh, guide you through a process of learning to have fewer inhibitions in this kind of area. So, that's five things about poo. It's possibly a little bit more than five. We're good with words, just not with counting. Thanks to Claire Darling, Professor Nick Haslam and Naomi Francis from the University of Melbourne. This podcast was made possible by the University of Melbourne. This episode was recorded on the 23rd of February 2017. Producers were Chris Hatzis, Carly Tai, Susanna Cornelius, Claire Darling and Andy Horvath. Audio engineering by Arch Cuthbertson. The Five Things About podcast is a University of Melbourne training program created by Dr. Andy Horvath. Still curious? Nip over to our other podcasts, Up Close and Eavesdrop on Experts for more.